0: The Standard Deviations podcast is a weekly production that looks at money, mind, and meaning all through a psychological lens. Each week, psychologist and New York Times bestselling author Dr. Daniel Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest, experts in everything from finance to literature to wellness. Support for Standard Deviations comes from The Guardian Network. You know the old saying, a penny saved is a penny earned? How many pennies would you earn if you skipped your next venti iced mocha half-calf latte, or that burger that needed five napkins? Over a lifetime, they add up. Like putting a kid through college add up. Find out where your priorities lie by playing the Cash Stash Dash at livingconfidently.com play. Hello, and welcome to the Standard Deviations podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I am joined today by a special guest, Jamie Catherwood, to talk about the history of finance. Uh, Jamie is a client portfolio associate at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. He is investment management's resident historian, and most importantly, he is the consensus FinTwit Rookie of the Year. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So um, you are running on one hour of sleep, I hear. Let's hear that story first of all.
1: Yeah. So I just got back from a democratized quant. I was there yesterday and, you know, there's a lot of Fintwit folks there, but I stupidly decided to get a 5 a.m. train back from Philly. And I think the Annie Duke was the last speaker and I think she wrapped up around nine or so, got back, had to pack and then just couldn't fall asleep. So it was a little long morning, but I got coffee and I'm excited to do this and ready to go.
0: Yeah, well, democratize quant looked incredible. I couldn't make it because of other other speaking engagements, but it looked like an incredible lineup, and and I'll totally be there next year. So, Jamie, the first question for you right out of the gate is just, you know, where the heck did you come from? Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you go from being a relative unknown to being on, you know, every major financial news network to being all over Twitter. Uh, to having your content shared far and wide, getting shout outs from some of the biggest uh, names in the game, uh, and then landing a job with one of the most respected quant shops on on Wall Street. So what what lessons are there in your story for people who are trying to break through and make a name for themselves in this noisy world of ours? I like this podcast on a good way to start a Friday
1: boost <laughs> up my ego but they get they get the questions get harder don't get <laughs> don't get too excited um, yeah so I guess I've been on Twitter for a while but I think we're gonna go into this later um, I'm a big soccer fan and that's the half English blood in me but I just used Twitter to follow my beloved Tottenham Hotspur and then last summer my friend Connor Witt who's also on Twitter, he told me that I should basically stop trying to use LinkedIn to network and pivot to Twitter, which I obviously didn't believe him because I couldn't fathom how Twitter would be helpful. But sure enough, he said, just follow everyone that I follow. And then you can kind of go from there, see who you like, who you don't like. And that's what I did. And I started noticing that there's a lot of people in the FinTwick crowd who were writing articles and putting out content. And I majored in history at King's college London, and I had kind of missed writing. I really enjoyed it. And I noticed that while there are a lot of really good writers who would write articles, you know, touching upon financial history, there was no one kind of strictly doing financial history as far back as like the Roman empire. So I kind of just thought that it would be a good way for me to meld what I was not, I don't know, good at, but what I actually knew and combine that with finance, because obviously there's people on Finto who are veterans and have been in the industry for decades. And I don't think I'm going to write about anything that can teach them something new, but I do know about history. So I figured it was just a good way to utilize my, my knowledge.
0: Well, you you know, you make an interesting point that I, that I can tell you has been absolutely true of my career. You know, I started off as sort of a general psychologist, and I was talking about, you know, general psychological principles and, you know, basic tenets of good leadership and, mm-hmm. you know, sound hiring practices and different things. And, you know, I was doing okay, uh, but my career really took off when I decided, when I sort of fell in love with and decided to specialize in behavioral finance. And like, I will meet people on planes and, you know, uh, in my travels and I tell them what I do and they can't even believe that it's a thing, <laughs> right? Like they can't, they go, what? You know, like you study the, the psychology of the stock market and it seems too niche, but I think you and I are living proof that, uh, you know, what's the saying? Niches make riches and that, that there is going to be a crowd for your thing, no matter how seemingly small or, or esoteric it is. Yeah, I uh, I'm
1: obviously biased, but I completely agree with you. Um, it's funny, like after Eric Balchunas and Scarlett Fu were kind enough to give me a first shot at TV on ETF IQ. When people like where I grew up and just outside, it's near where I live now in Middleburg, Virginia. Uh, when family friends asked like why I was on, <laughs> it was uh, kind of difficult to explain because <laughs> so there's a thing called finance twitter and then i had to go from there and like write these history articles and you could just see they just were so confused why that ended up with like me going on tv
0: (laughs) yeah i i can tell you that i I, might well my dad is a financial advisor but i think you know so he he gets it but i'd say you know many many of my close friends and family have have no idea what i do really (laughs) Um, i think such is such is the modern workplace right yeah um, so there are a couple of hackneyed but but true uh, sayings about history. You know, the sayings like uh, uh, those that don't learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat them. You know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. So I have been a huge advocate historically for, for telling people to study financial history. So there's, you know, that, take that for what it's worth. But as a psychologist, I also know about behavioral problems with studying history, like representativeness. And I also see on Twitter every day um, people creating these chart crimes, you know, overlaying Uh, historical chart moves with what's happening in the market today and, you know, trying to tie everything we see back to, you know, a tulip, you know, tulip bulb crisis or, you know, the Great Recession or something like that. So Mm -hmm. how, you know, I think this is an important question to say, how do we learn the lessons of history without falling prey to this representativeness and just seeing history around every corner?
1: Yeah. So for me, I think that I tend to focus on more like narratives and interesting stories from history, rather than, you know, like a committing a chart crime where you know at the nineteenth the century there was a similar looking trajectory <laughs> um, compared to some return today, and you can put a chart and then try and draw some conclusion from that. Um, so I think like Jim O'Shaughnessy says, arbitraging human nature. Human nature is like the last arbitrage, basically, because, I mean, just from all the posts I've done, nothing has changed since I mentioned that I did the one article on the Roman Empire. And I mean, it's just crazy in every single time period that investors have behaved the same way. So I think it's useful in the sense that you quickly learn that this time is never different. I mean... Yeah, really ever. And that it's just good to study financial history so that you don't get caught up in the latest fad. And I think that you just have to kind of know that obviously the market today is different than trading on the Dutch stock exchange in the 17th century, when there's just one stock, basically the East India Company. But there's still a lot you can learn just from the behavioral aspects. But yeah, as you said, you definitely can't you know take some like hard investment advice necessarily from history, but there's just a lot of interesting stories. Um, And I think you can learn a lot about human nature from reading uh, the articles that are out there on these crazy
0: events in history. So taking that, when you think about these first principles, these first behavioral principles, what are a couple of Uh, psychological or behavioral tendencies that you see repeating themselves over the course of financial history? So I think the main thing is just everyone
1: getting swept up by whatever the crazy new technology or fad is. So I wrote um, one of my recent articles on the IPO bubble in the 1690s, where basically this guy, William Phipps, uh, he went sailing in the Caribbean and he had heard murmurs of this uh, sunken treasure ship. And so he thought, you know, why not He'll go out and find it? And he failed. He came back, got some funding from this Duke. So the Duke kind of be thought of like as a VC because he's backing this guy who had, you know, no revenue or any money really. And he's just saying, you know, there could be a lot of money in this. <laughs> and so the guy backed him, bought, his, uh, like bought him a ship, crew, et cetera, supplies. And he goes out and he finds this treasure in the bottom of the ocean floor. And he hauls up 32 tons of treasure, which just still blows my mind. I can't even wrap my head around how much that is. But he comes back and the investors in his uh, journey receive 10,000% returns. And yeah, and so... After that, you know, all these other investors on the London stock market are saying, no, oh, we want to end on that. And so all of these other companies either claiming to have invented new diving engine technology, which would allow sea divers to stay down on the ocean floor longer and theoretically have more time to hunt for treasure and haul up more. They went public as joint stock companies. And then there are also other groups of men who were just forming the like Jamie Catherwood Exploration Company and promising that they also had a hot tip where they could find this another treasure ship. And sure enough, I mean, investors just flocked to those companies and these little expedition groups. And you just see that kind of story play out time and time again. And it's just so clear afterwards, obviously hindsight bias, but that this was just one person gets a massive return. Everyone else wants to make a lot of money quickly. And so they all flocked to that idea. And then, you know, almost none of them work out because there was no other, that no one replicated even close to that success. I don't think anyone actually ever ended up finding any treasure.
0: Well that that is a truly incredible story and it, it puts me in mind of Bill Gates conversation with Warren Buffett when he said you know look what you do is not brain surgery basically you know what you do is is widely talked about and widely written about uh, why why don't other people just do what you do and Buffett said because no one wants to get rich slowly yeah, uh, and that's that's how Buffett's gotten rich. He's gotten rich slowly and and methodically and in a principled way by following some you know frankly behavioral best practices. Uh, mm-hmm. Everybody wants the ten thousand percent return with a, you know while while having a bit of an Indiana Jones adventure. By the way, uh, as well. <laughs> <laughs> My, uh, are you familiar with Forrest Finn's treasure? Uh, I'm not so there's an antiquities dealer who in in i think new mexico who was diagnosed with cancer uh and hid millions of dollars worth of treasure oh, yeah out, out Actually, in the out yeah. in the western us and uh i think four or five four or five people have died looking for it but my um my nine-year-old daughter keeps maps in her room. Like, oh, really? He wrote, yeah, he wrote I like a I vaguely remember a high school teacher telling me about this. <laughs> he wrote a poem. Like he wrote this like nine stanza poem, I think, really? about where it is. And my daughter's got the poem all marked up in this map. And so, yeah, like getting rich quickly, you know, she's nine years old. So, you know, getting rich quickly is appealing at any age. Yeah. And, and doing so in, in such a dramatic fashion is certainly extra appealing. Yeah. So, yeah. Go, going back to this, you know, learning from history, I, I think you're exactly right. You study princip- uh, you, you study history to get these first principles, right? These broad truths. And I'm actually a huge advocate for for philosophy as being sort of an undergirding discipline for those who are in the business of finance. And so I think you study history to arrive at your your philosophical assumptions about how markets work and not to try and lay charts over each other and say, <laughs> well, you know, here, here we go again. It's yeah. the South Sea bubble all over again. Um, so most people uh, think about the launch of SPY in, in 1993 as being sort of the dawn of passive investing, the dawn of, uh, of ETFs. But you have traced the roots of ETFs all the way back to medieval Europe. So can you tell us a bit about uh, about Commenda contracts and how this all got started? Yeah, so
1: I got, there's been a little flack responses to these uh, this article recently because I think people got confused I was so the point, the title of the article is called The Road to ETFs. And it was saying that basically ETFs today are designed to offer smaller investors a low cost, diversified portfolio, right? And the commenda contract in medieval Italy set out to, I mean, it basically offered those same kind of objectives. And so what it was is a merchant in medieval Italy. Could not always afford to kind of fund his own uh, trip to another port to sell his goods and so he would go to a quote passive investor they're called like sedentary investors which i thought is kind of funnier <laughs> um but and he would get financing from them and the sedentary investor would put in 66 percent of the capital to fund the journey and then he would split the profits 50 50 uh with Whatever amount the, the merchant had sold when he got back from his uh, journey of selling his goods, and so my argument was is that this commenda contract, so this one specifically, there were a couple of different variations, but this sixty six percent paid in and 50, 50 split was called the bilateral commenda contract. And to me, it seems kind of like an ETF because basically there was a lot of accounts of these passive investors. Buying up stakes in multiple ships because they didn't have to put in a hundred percent of their capital; they had more to spread around, so they could put it in other commendas too. And there were accounts of like people buying, you know, two thirds of this ship and one fourth or one eighth of this other ship, and they could kind of build themselves this diversified portfolio of stakes in these uh, merchants' journeys. And they also didn't have to take the active risk of actually taking the journey because the merchant, he had the better kind of ROI opportunity, because he only had put in the remaining 33% of the capital into funding the trip. But he had to actually venture out into the high seas, you know, which is very dangerous at the time. in the
0: game, right?
1: Exactly. And there was certainly no guarantee that he was going to make it back alive from that trip, whether it be, you know, pirates or just, crashing and washing ashore somewhere. Um, So he had to take that very active risk to get that higher return. While the sedentary investor, he could just spread his uh, capital across the diversified portfolio of these contracts and just sit in the comfort and safety of his own home. And there was also a liquid secondary market for these contracts. So I mean, it doesn't matter once he's set sail. It doesn't matter to the active investor merchant who actually is still funding the trip as long as it's funded because it's already funded and he just is splitting the capital when he gets back, the profits rather. And so the original sedentary investor could sell that stake to another buyer if he wished. So to me, it kind of seemed like the same same principles as ETFs. And it was... Kind of just showing that the road towards ETFs today started back then because it was a you know not exact product but it's the similar ideals behind it
0: yeah so the the ideals of passivity and the ideals of of spreading your bets and your risks around because you're not sure what's gonna happen I mean that to me is is sort of the the philosophical heartbeat of passive investing is like look I, I don't know what the future holds so I'm gonna I'm going to spread it around and, and, you know, not take any outsized bet on any, any given, any given equity or any given ship in this case. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, people, people love to, to misunderstand you. So welcome, you know, welcome to the two edge, (laughs) welcome to the two edge sort of internet fame. You, you meet a lot of great people and you get a lot of great renown and you also get people uh, blowing up your comments. (laughs) It's kind of, kind of how it goes, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, I, I had always learned that, that uh, 1924 was sort of the birth of the mutual fund with the creation of the Massachusetts Investors Trust in Boston, uh, which is fascinatingly still around today as mm-hmm. MFS investment management. Um, you draw the the early roots of mutual funds as beginning as early as 1774 uh, with a Dutch uh, instrument known as the Unity Creates Strength Fund, which that is like. That sounds like the most draconian piece of political <laughs> legislation. <laughs> yeah, I think actually, so that democratized coin yesterday,
1: I, I could be wrong, but I think that Ben Johnson over at Morningstar said that yesterday was like the anniversary of the founding of Massachusetts Investors Trust. Um, so that's a little fun fact if it's true. I'm pretty sure that's happy, what he said. <laughs> Massachusetts Investors Yeah, Trust. I didn't know that it was MFS today. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so the Unity Creates Strength Fund, as you said, was founded in Holland in 1774. And essentially, this guy, Abraham van Ketwich, he decided after, so I guess backing up for a second, in 1773, the Dutch banks had taken really large and concentrated bets on the East India Company. And When the East India Company's stock tanked in the summer of 73, then it brought the Dutch banks to the brink of bankruptcy. And that was kind of a lesson for Van Kowitsch on the benefits of diversification. And because a lot of sort of retail investors almost got burned by having their money with these banks that took these outsized bets on one stock, he decided to come up with this first mutual fund where for a very low cost, it was only 20 basis points, which is interesting. Um, but the diversified portfolio of, I believe it was fifth bonds spread across like 10 different sectors. And there were plantation loans, government bonds, like colonial loans, and all different types. And they were all equal weighted. To minimize, that. it was low cost, diversified, and it seemed like a modern, like I don't know, uh, Bloomberg Barclays like ag index fund, um, and so it had the similar structure to a mutual fund where you in shares. But the unique part about it, which certainly does not exist today, is that they had a iron chest with three locks on it. So one, it was passive because they spelled out all the investments in their prospectus. So there wasn't really any wiggle room for them because they already said, like, this is what we're investing in. So once you bought your shares, it's kind of, you know, they can't change it. And they also, though, put the certificates, like the actual, the physical bonds into this iron chest that had three locks so that if any decision were to be made or anything is going to be sold, et cetera, three different authorized parties would have to come together and unlock this chest at the same time. So, I mean, talk about a lockup period, but <laughs> this is certainly, uh, that, it certainly describes this. Um, but I thought that was interesting.
0: Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I think I think so often now, I don't want to be I don't want to be a luddite. We've certainly made a a ton of progress, and I do believe that the world is getting better and better. Uh, but it it occurs to me that modern money managers could benefit from this three lock setup. I mean, there's some <laughs> there's some fraud prevention there. There's some liquidity provisions. you know i've I've often said that, you know, mutual funds should come with a 25-year lockup. Like they just, they just should. That's one of the, one of the best things you could do for the average investor is just make it impossible for them to sell, you know, things that they buy for, for a very, very long time. Uh, and I like the, you know, sort of the three, the three keys, the three people having to agree on something. I think. if any if any money managers are listening, you may wanna you may want to go back to this three locks provision. I think it's I think it's got some big big time <laughs> oh, yeah. upside. So you Mike, get the iron chest out. That's right. Just don't just don't call it the Unity Creates Strength fund because I, if somebody wants you to join something called Unity Creates Strength, like <laughs> run run far away. So, perhaps the most interesting historical tidbit i've I've come across in in your writing was actually had to do with Hitler's Third Reich, where anyone considered degenerate uh, had their art purged and devalued. you know you you cite the fact that Hitler was himself, of course, a, a failed art student and that he stole twenty as much as twenty percent of all of the fine art in Europe, uh, but because he devalued Jewish artists and liberals, thinkers, free thinkers it led to a situation in the Lucerne auction of 1938. You write that paintings by Van Gogh, Picasso, and Matisse sold for as little as $100. So this is, of course, an extreme instance of a value opportunity precipitated by an atrocious social attitude. Um, So it seems unlikely to me that anything of this magnitude exists today, but what ideas or attitudes do you think we have today that cause us to overlook valuable opportunities.
1: So I think, so in that article, I was comparing, (laughs) it never sounds good when you're talking about Hitler and then saying what you're comparing (laughs) to today. But I was talking about that kind of idea of these overlooked paintings being similar to overlooked value stocks today, because I mean, the market is just at the time when I wrote it, it was, you know, Fang was in the news every single day And I mean, the FANG companies are still in the news quite often, but it was just always focused on the FANG and CNBC, Bloomberg, et cetera. And the point of the article was that there is a lot of kind of good value companies that might be in boring, quote, boring industries, but that doesn't mean that they were not worth more than they're being valued at. And so there was a good opportunity there. And just like in this Uh, article, Hitler just decided that, you know, these very valuable paintings, I mean, I think I can't remember what it was now, but some of those paintings that were going for $100, like just recently sold for like 120 million or something. (laughs) And so it's just him deciding these aren't good, you know, these aren't quality paintings. And so then they go for cheap prices. But that was just his kind of decision. And it wasn't based on Anything more than kind of his opinion, and so it was actually the the guy who was snapping up these paintings for a hundred dollars. I can't remember his name now, but I don't know if you remember. A few years ago, I think it was in like 2011. The a guy, he was like an old. I think he was in his 80s or 90s. He got caught on a train, I believe, going to Switzerland with all of this looted Nazi art. Do you remember that? It was like worth like a billion dollars. Well, I don't. I don't remember it. Yeah, it was it was uh, all over the headlines for like a week or something, and then it kind of went away. But the he that guy who got caught in 2011 was like the grandson of this guy. Actually, in, at the time, the Third Reich buying up these paintings, and he had been passing them down like through his uh, relatives. But so to me, I thought just the kind of comparison to value stocks was there because you have good companies that just might not be as exciting as, you know, Netflix or Amazon, but they're still valuable companies. And just because the opinion on them might not be like they're flashy and sexy doesn't mean that they're not good companies worth investing in.
0: Well, it's interesting because uh, later today I'm talking to Brent Beshore, who mm-hmm. invests in like, you know, plumbing, plumbing companies and port-a-potty rentals and yeah. things like this. And, you know, seem, seems to be doing very well, you know, because this is stuff that is effectively recession-proof. Um, you know, the things that things that people will always need, dirty jobs that the average person does not want to do. And when you looked at the Great Recession, I mean, a lot of what did really well in the Great Recession was, first of all, sin stocks, because, you know, when, when times get tough, people um you know want to smoke and drink and kind of you know forget forget about things mm-hmm. uh, but you also saw you know you also saw these really unglamorous companies like the dollar stores of the world doing really really well um in the great recession and and people had not historically had eyes to see them because you know it's not it's not artificial intelligence or you know whatever yeah. <laughs> whatever we're talking about today Uh, There's, there's still a ton of money to be made and there's still a lot of opportunity for, for people who have eyes to, to see that. So Jamie, as we, as we begin to wrap up, so I'm, I'm doing a new segment on the show that, that taps back into my, my roots as a clinical psychologist. And, you know, one of the things that clinical psychologists do is they ask their, their clients to, to free associate, you know, they'll say a phrase and then they want you to just say the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, because this is going to give us deep insights into your soul. Uh-oh. <laughs> so, oh
2: yeah. Right.
0: Okay. So here so here we go. Uh no here pressure. We, with no with no informed consent. I'd have to get you to sign something if you were my client. But no, we're just jumping in. We're just uh, gonna share it with a ton of people. <laughs> that's
2: right. Okay, so
0: free free association here. So getting up at 4 a.m. Tired. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie in 10 years. Uh married and happy. Ah,
1: wonderful! PSG, <laughs> gross.
0: <laughs> Liverpool,
1: mm, not a fan. Was more of a fan two years ago. Not a fan since the two-two draw and Lamella penalty.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so there you have you have roasted my two favorite teams, and uh, you will never be invited back again.
1: <laughs> you like PSG too? Oh, I do. I Interesting. do. Interesting. Yeah. We have the the oil takeover or after.
0: Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. But after, after only I'm a total bandwagon PSG fan only, only because actually because we have some good friends from, from Paris who, who got me into it, but. Okay. Well then you're excused. Okay. (laughs) Um, so the, the next to last question I ask, you know, um, big, big reader, of course, you're, you're clearly a big reader and I, I want the world. I feel like the world would be better if, if we all read a few more books. So what is a book uh, that you would recommend to the listeners as one of the most important books you've ever read or a book that really changed your life?
1: Uh, they kind of, I'll give you two. One, I guess if it's for a younger person and maybe not with a finance background like moi, um, but Barbarians at the Gate was kind of the book that really got me hooked on reading about business and finance. My dad, who's been in finance his whole life, said, you should read this book and he got it for me. And, you know, it's a pretty thick book, so I wasn't (laughs) too excited about starting it when he got it for me. But I mean, I, if I could like wipe my memory and read that again for the first time, I would love to. And then for people who have already read that, you know, the priority read this book too, but I read against the gods, the history of risk last year. I think it's the remarkable history of risk. And that was, I just found that fascinating, um, especially because the first half was like almost entirely history, but it was just so well-written and it talked about a lot of topics that I hadn't previously thought about. Um, so that's definitely one that I've really enjoyed,
0: well, you know against the gods is all about the history, the history of risk taking, right? And I think this yeah. is one of the most important and under discussed topics in our in our industry, and I've wanted to write a book about it, but i have I have not just because against the gods is so <laughs> near perfect. But yeah, I, I mean, I I feel like there's effectively nothing I could do to improve on yeah. that book. So I it think gets, that'd be a lot of like,
1: oh, kind of like Against the Gods. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna try and take on perfection. Here. So Against the Gods is a, a, a wonderful one. Uh, and Barbarians at the Gate is too for the aspiring megalomaniac, uh, megalomaniacs among, among you. <laughs> so it's actually funny, you were talking about, I was
1: gonna mention one, I'm, can't wait to listen to your talk with Brent. I love uh, love Brent. And who, who is the third pers- person you're talking to?
0: So I'm talking to um, Morgan Housel, Brent, and uh, Jason Voss today. Wow. So I get to bring down the average IQ
1: <laughs> of that group. Um, nice, two DC fin to it in a day. Um, but when you're talking about the kind of unsexy companies and how in recessions they tend to perform well, my dad was the corporate treasurer at Wendy's. And he was telling me a couple of weeks ago, I think actually as it was actually, well, we were listening to Patrick's one of Patrick's four episodes with Brent. And they were talking about a similar uh, similar theme. And my dad was saying that in recessions, Wendy's did like Wendy's uh, sales just started rising like considerably because people would be stressed and they weren't caring as much about eating well and they just wanted to get something fast and cheap and so they would just go to Wendy's and like it was completely counter uh countercyclical to the market so I thought that was interesting and kind of touched upon what you were saying
0: yeah i mean the jbc is the greatest value in america uh, we, take, we take, man, whenever I want to feed my kids on the cheap, it's time to roll, it's time to roll through Wendy's. I, I understand <laughs> that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so if people, if people have enjoyed this, you know, we've, we've just touched on a, a small bit of the, of the depth that you've, you've gotten into around the history of finance. And I think you do a great job, again, of, of laying out first principles, helping people understand the path that we're on. Uh, if people have enjoyed what they've heard from you today, where, where can they find you? Where can they interact with you or, or read more of what you've written? Well, one, thank you for the kind words. It
1: means a lot coming from a very established author like yourself. And two, I think that Twitter would probably be the best place to follow. That's where I can post all my articles and do a lot of tweets um, of excerpts from old historical books that no one else is nerdy enough to go searching for. And that is JFC underscore three underscore. It's the worst Twitter handle in the world, but I'm kind of stuck with it. now.
0: It really is. It's so bad (laughs) underscores. It's awful. (laughs) And so, um, but what, and what about the blog posts? Uh, Where, where's the best place for them to find the blog posts?
1: Yeah. So, that's in my Twitter bio, but I think it's just medium.com slash Jamie Catherwood. Um, but if you go to my Twitter
0: page, it's in my bio. Awesome, Jamie Catherwood, Rookie of the Year. Thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs> thank you so much for having me.
2: All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, and its affiliates, subsidiaries, employees, and agents. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon the information participants consider reliable and Dr. Crosby and Guardian are not responsible for the consequences of any decisions or actions taken because of the information provided. Guardian Trademark and the Guardian G Trademark logo are registered service marks and are used with express permission. All materials are subject to United States copyright laws. Copyright 2018, Guardian.